My notebook was a graveyard of poets. Melvin Dixon, dead, 1992. Essex Hemphill, dead, 1995. Joseph Beam, dead, 1998. Asado Saint, dead, 1994. Reginald Shepard, dead, 2008. The names ran together as I blinked back tears. The names became my name. It's just too easy for a black gay man to drown amid the names of dead black gay men. Since I had started my graduate studies, it seemed that just as soon as I looked up the name of a black gay poet whose work I aspired to one day see my own work read alongside, I'd learn that the poet had died of AIDS or poverty or some other tragedy that left him abandoned on the margins of literature's memory. Boys like us never really got away, it seemed. We just bought ourselves time. A few more gasps of air, a few more poems, a few more years. History hurt more than any weapon inflicted on us. It hit back harder than any weapon we could wield, any weapon we could turn ourselves into. I sunk down. I looked away. I felt that loneliness and let it settle in, heavy and final. I don't know how long I sat on the floor of the restroom I retreated to, crying, staring, and seeing nothing. Eventually, I stood up again and washed my face, still avoiding my reflection. It seemed as if my life were waiting for me outside that room. Like a polite guest, I'd left waiting at the table in the cafe. It was rude to keep him waiting. It helped to think of my life as someone separate from me, a person who didn't deserve to be abandoned. So sitting back down at that table of the pile of books, I returned to Reginald Shepard's words. He was gone, but they were still here. I thought about all of the poets who had kept me going. One more minute, one more step. Of the drowned and the drowning. I felt the cord pulled taut between us. I took a breath. I started a draft of a new poem. I am Darnell Moore, and this is Being Seen an in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on the gay and queer Black male experience, the first season is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. That was Saeed Jones, author and poet, and that was part of his story, How We Fight for Our Lives. We all tell stories to ourselves and to others. They are a fabric and a currency tying us to each other, to our contexts, to our pasts. They are how we remember and how we wish to be understood. And they remain far after we are gone, an explanation of what we were. They are our proof of life. Stories give us spaces to do more than just survive. 
They expand the edges of our interior lives. They give us identities and experiences that we might not otherwise traverse. Sometimes they function as a mirror and sometimes as a door. But who gets to be the storyteller and where do their stories appear? Do they have to come from an officially sanctioned place, from the things that make us feel comfortable and are easily recognized? Or can we be brave enough to imagine that my, that our story, which might not initially look like some others, are just as relevant, relatable, and deserving of space? You know, speaking of the narrative, right, there's a lot of talk around you know, the, the telling of sort of the American story. I think about, right, you and Kiese Lehman have in so many ways helped us in your memoirs and, and m- many others before this, right? But yours is also an American story. <laughs> yeah. And I'm interested in how you see your writing and the writing of other Black writers who have placed their stories within the context of the American story. What has that meant for you? Um, And what do you think it means for writing that has been created right now? This idea of just stretching, making more elastic, this very rigid or a very sort of simplistic or myopic American story that has so often left our narratives out. But what you're saying is, no, 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 my story, a black gay story from the South is also an American story. I think what writers like Kese or or Dinesh Smith Morgan Parker do so well and in a way that has really empowered me to do the same is to use our experiences, the specificity of our Blackness. We are none of us, none of those writers I mentioned are interchangeable. We all have very different, you know, lives, histories, um, interests, but all of us, I think, have um, stepped into an understanding that we are a kind of stained glass and America is the light shining through us. Ben Corey Jones' story is also an American story. He played baseball, he is from Memphis, he loves to cook, and he is from a family of storytellers. He's a showrunner, a director, and a producer. He's a brother and a son and a Black gay man from the South who is rocking it in Hollywood. To find more expansive narratives, we have to cultivate the storytellers. We have to survive. We have to have space to be artists. Our homies, and I remember growing up, and, you know, my dad um, played professional baseball for, like, like two years. Like he was not, you know, he got, he got out of the league pretty early. So my brother and I grew up playing baseball our entire lives, which I'm very grateful that I had a father who, who took me to the baseball field every every other day, basically. My, most of my childhood was spent on the baseball field. And I'm glad now because I still have abs um, to, to show for it. <laughs> and, so, um, and so my father and brother, like my brother just excelled at sports in like a very natural, and like my brother was like a superior athlete because like we would, my father would teach us and coach us on the baseball field, and then my brother and my dad would go to the batting cage for extra practice, you know? And I was, here I am, like, this kid that likes to read and sing and dance. I was like, look, I'll go to baseball practice, but I'm not going to the extra batting cage. Like, like that's where I draw the line. Like, y'all have had me out in this hot sun. <laughs> you know, me just complaining like a diva. I'm like, y'all have had me out in this hot sun all day. Just let me go home by myself. 
while y'all go to the batting cage, right? And so they would be like, all right, fine. So they would leave me at home by myself and they would go to the batting cage for like another three hours. But that time that they left me alone was the time that I got to explore who Ben Corey Jones was. You know, like my dad and my brother, they didn't even really know it at the time, but what they were doing was just giving me space to create and be who I was. You know, like sometimes your parents may not know where your predilections lie, but the fact that they just left me in the house, and I was like 11 or 12, like I was old enough to be at home by myself, and I would just like blast Whitney Houston, and I would dance around my, my house. I would, you know, I would put on a fashion show in my own clothes. I would like, you know... I would pretend I was in theater. You're like, whatever. What? <laughs> and I would do that. And I realized as a young black boy from the South, that was a luxury that I had. That most black boys don't have the luxury and we don't give our young black boys just the space to explore who they are because we're going to tell you, we're going to tell you who you are because we have to teach our black boys how to survive, first of all. And if you can't, Survive. You can't even begin to explore art, you know? And so I think we have a preoccupation with teaching our black boys just to survive. And I understand it. You have to because, and it go, this goes to the, I have a passage from James Baldwin that I'm going to read later. And it just, go, it speaks to that point that black boys are so busy trying to survive that we can't even begin to be artists. And this is my favorite part. Every Negro boy in any situation during those years, at least, who reaches this point realizes at once profoundly because he wants to live, that he stands in great peril and must find with speed a thing, a gimmick, to lift him out, to start him on his way. And it does not matter what the gimmick is. What if the story is about our survival, a narrative that offers up a piece of what we were when we were here, a validation of a life put to the page, the lines that say, this is how I wish to be seen, the lines that say, I was here. And it is for me to say, not for you to interpret, the stories that scream, this, this is my proof of life. Syed Jones, award-winning poet and novelist. Speaking of folk who are, who are trying and struggling to breathe, right? Here, you name your book as a proof of life, as an intervention that's speaking against this idea of social death even, right? Like this idea to be black or queer or trans or undocumented is to somehow be a no thing. Say more about what you mean by this proof of life and stories as tools of proof, proving one's life, a proof of life. Right, I mean, you know... As, as someone who came of age watching what happened to people like Matthew Shepard, who was killed for being gay, and, and James Byrd Jr., a black man who was killed by white supremacists a few hours from where I grew up in Texas, I... I had this sense that so often um, when you are marginalized in America, your introduction to people who don't look or live or love like you is often past tense or is often like the worst day of your life. And you may not be around to 
protect your story, to advocate for your loved ones, to say, wait, that's not right. Whether that's like, those aren't my pronouns or that's not what happened. You've got the story wrong. You know what I mean? Yes. And, and so I, as a writer, you know, one of the goals I wanted to accomplish with this memoir is to be able to say, no one will be able to speak for me. I know, like, this is my story. And, and if you want to engage my humanity, you know, if I'm not here, if I'm not able to speak for myself, no one will ever be able to say, well, Saeed Jones didn't tell us. <laughs> Listen, you almost got me on the side. Like, I'm almost like in a church pew, like about to leap up and shout because I, I know that, you know, I get that story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, so much of, they, they put words in our mouths. They steal the words from us. You know, I, I think about within 36 hours of this conversation that you and I are having, you know, a black trans woman uh, was found dead. She was murdered, I believe, in New York. And, and, and yes, the way I believe Bronx. it was, yeah, and the way the New York Post wrote about her, right? Um, and this is often how we learn about our, our trans sisters, in particular, our black trans sisters, is unfortunately when they've been struck down. Yes. And it's like their chosen family is disrespected in the reporting. Their names, their pronouns disrespected. Their aspirations, you know, even if they're not involved in sex work. Like so often a reporter leaps at an opportunity to describe them as a sex worker. And there's nothing wrong with sex work. But when it is used implicitly to justify violence against someone, that's a problem, right? And so that is um, the... The, like you said, the social death, I, I, I believe in trying to speak against via my work, right? You remind me as you're talking of, um, speaking of Newark, a, a, a sister, friend, Erica Morgan, speak her name, um, who was a trans, a black trans woman who was killed. She was a student at Rutgers. Um, she was at Rutgers, New Brunswick. And I remember how the media outlets misgendered her upon her death and it was our ability Beryl Satter and I had founded the Queer Newark or History Project with Christina Straussenberg and we actually had a recording of Erica in conversation in an intergeneral conversation about being black and trans in Newark and her words her words her words were proof of life so we were able to go back to the Star Ledger and say hear Erica in her own words name her identity as she wanted to be named. And this is what you're saying in terms of, 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 of our ability to write ourselves, not in, as a counter-narrative, but into the narrative on our own terms. And if we survive, if our stories are proof, become classics, and are undeniably American, can we make it to the other side of protest? To a place where they aren't Black stories like gay stories, but stories which happen to center, this time, Black gay lives. Where we get to just exist and occupy the space without undue explanation or observation. Yashua Simmons, fashion editor and stylist, and also my partner. You tell stories through the visual. So uh, just say more about that. Like, say more about the way that you use your imagination, your artistry to create these visual stories in the world. And, and, and the thing I love about the stories you tell is that you're really trying to, you center Black people, you center queer and trans folk, you're centering the, the, the subject who typically are commoditized 
but really never really loved on an image. And it's it's in, and when I look at your work, I see love in it. So talk about how you how you use sort of this this how you tell stories through visual and and whose story are you trying to tell? It really wasn't until. I got to Out Magazine where I was a fashion director, and that's many years later that I really sort of found um, what I felt like was sort of like my calling was in sort of like a comfort. And and that truly was sort of creating images that I could look at and that could look back at me. And a lot of, you know, I'll speak mostly to Out because I, I think that from then to sort of now is has been... Um, sort of more defining for me in terms of like where I'm getting my inspiration from. But at Out, we spent a lot of, we spent our time sort of amplifying voices and celebrating people who popular culture or popular media were not giving flowers to. So it was really within that that I found myself and I sort of, there was a purpose there, you know, it wasn't just a contribution to the stuff, right? There's a lot of stuff and a lot of noise and I felt like I was just contributing to noise, but it was really there that I was sort of able to like hone in and really identify with what um, what a calling looks like and what a calling is. From there, my inspiration, right? So in the writer's room, these brilliant folk that I worked with, Philip Picardi, Raquel Willis, and just all the, all the brilliant people that I worked with there in the writer's room, like their jobs was to amplify these voices in the moment and to tell these stories and to politicize it in a way that was protest, right? Not for politics sake, but that was for protest. But in my approach to the fashion, I wanted to look at what was on the other side of that, right? Like, what does the other side of that look like, right? So not to sort of politicize the body and the picture that I was making, right? Because we're doing that with the words, but like, let's imagine what the other side of the protest looks like, right? The freedom that we're all fighting for, like, what does that look like? Too often, our bodies and stories are commoditized turned into statements that are a reflection of stereotypes rather than a reflection of self. That's why we need story images like the ones Yashua creates, where we see ourselves, where they gaze back at us as brother and friend, symbols of love and connection, unbound and unfetishized, nuanced and full of humanity. So I'm currently gazing at a portrait I style with friend and photographer Emmanuel Monsalf Sanchez. And what our objective was and what I see when I look at this image is intentional storytelling. It was my swan song, if you will, my last sitting at Out Magazine, the February 2020 issue in this sitting centered love. Two black queer men imagined as gardeners, lovers, partners in care of each other. They stand in the middle of the portrait against a hand-painted canvas of a sage hue. Around them, saw within the set are fresh-cut flowers. There's eucalyptus, peonies, and other wild cuts. Simple vases, one black, another stone. Under their feet, shavings of hydrangea. Models Elsie and Robbie are centered here, standing in tune with each other. Elsie leans lovingly backwards on the shoulder of Robbie. Eyes closed, his head is thrown back to the ceiling, with his hand at his waist, and his neck elongated and exposed with grace and lines of a trained dancer. Robbie tall, brown, with a natural hair texture, stands tall, supporting Elsie, who is equally as a tall, but appears shorter because of his body language. 
is dark with a chiseled physique with hair out and free. Firm and planted, Robbie is holding a bouquet of fresh-cut pink and peach wildflowers. His head is slightly tilted and his gaze is to the camera, connected. When I look into his eyes, I don't know, I feel something. Unsure of the sentiment, but I think it's what I like most about the image. The connection, strength, and protectiveness of Robbie. All while Elsie relishes in the moment. Casual, yet so, so elegantly poised. As I zoom out of the details, I realize this is probably one of the most impactful images as a reflection of self that I created. Also, just one of my favorite images. I see myself here. I see my brother. I see my friends. The beauty of unfetishized Black queer love, vulnerability, and honest ways of living different truths for folks who are deserving of life and love while being innocent, free, queer, and Black. They say if you can make it in Hollywood, you can make it anywhere. I'm not so sure. Can they make it if they come from Camden or Jackson? Can Memphis make it to Hollywood? And if they get here, who is to say the doors will open and they will be granted access into the rooms? Will they be given the space, money, and resources to create? Ben Corey Jones. There are so many people in my family who I grew up with. Like, I mean, look, I live in L.A. and I have the opportunity to write for television and write movies, but it's not lost on me how many people are from a place where, like, a place where I'm from who will probably never leave Memphis, you know, to, to become artists and become writers. You know, so by the grace of God, I'm able to, 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 to sort of be, um, to have every, everyone in my family and where, people where I'm from on my backs almost because I get the rare opportunity. And, it, and it's, it's such a direct connection, right? I mean... If we want things to change in television and film specifically, you know, we have to sort of find a way to bridge people who live in Birmingham and Memphis and Huntsville and in Camden, New Jersey, and find a way to funnel them out to places where their stories can be told on a large scale. Like, then that's that's one of the challenges that happens, and that's that's one of the things that I think that prevents us from seeing a wide array and a wide diverse types of stories is that we we have to go out and help these storytellers find a way to navigate the system and to navigate their art and want to realize they can be artists, first of all, you know? Some stories have yet to be told, and we need them to be because they are part of our history, our American history, our Black, gay, queer history. Ben Corey Jones. Right. Um, How does that, and that often jives with the stories that, that, our people are that the larger society actually need. How do you hold that intention? Like right now, you know, there's a there's a big emphasis and a desire to to tell stories that have been long unheard. And that may or may not account for all of the stories. And it will never fully account for all of the stories that people need to to be exposed to. I think about just you can create, I don't know, hundreds of movies just off of the strength of what you've what you've grown up with in Memphis. So I'm interested in what stories do you think? And your freedom dream. I'm still in words from Robin Kelly. What are the stories that you want to see on a screen? I mean, there's actually one story in particular that I that I need and I must see on screen, and that is the um, the AIDS epidemic from Black people's perspective. 
the black male perspective. I've had the pleasure of working with, um, you know, a lot of advocacy groups for black LGBTQ youth and uh, and even just advocacy groups for, for black gay men in general. And one of the things they always talk about that there's a huge population of black gay men that we lost that have gone forgotten, basically. And those were the those were like the the black gay, the black guys who were in theaters in like the 70s and the 80s in New York City. They were in San Francisco. They were in Atlanta. They were in D.C., in politics even. And we just sort of lost this generation of black gay men. And also because the narrative of the AIDS epidemic usually is from the white privileged perspective. And so we haven't talked about what it was like to go through the AIDS epidemic as a poor black person. Sometimes it's easy to think of a story as just entertainment. But stories have power. Stories can save our lives if we can be brave enough to tell them. Mark Meacham, Vive Healthcare. There has been a lot of talk related to the statistics around HIV-AIDS, but just hearing statistics doesn't necessarily create change. But stories can. In what ways do you think stories can change perception and ultimately behavior? Well, I think one part of it is kind of the space of what's said, what everybody knows, but nobody is supposed to say in our communities, in many communities, in black and brown communities. And so, you know, I was particularly struck by a story one time, a Latina woman from the Bronx was talking about that she acquired HIV, that a cousin and the cousin's son had died of HIV, And that even within this family where it was present, and she herself was living with HIV, that even within that family, no one was talking about it. No one was allowed to talk about it publicly, if you will. And so I think part of it is is that we need to make those experiences that are challenging or that are life-threatening, quite frankly, that we actually need to talk about them. They need not to be that thing that everybody knows, but people don't talk about or that people shake their head about. And so I think that's, and I think that when it's a story, when it's someone else's story that allows you to access it in a less threatening way than if it's your story, that if you're face-to-face with uh, a parent or a child or your, your family or your church, that becomes a lot more stressful. But I think the ability to look at a story that's not your own but is your own um, allows you to access those things, allows people to really to grapple with them. Finding the stories we want to tell, we need to tell, isn't easy. We have to be willing to share ourselves, like Saeed and Yashua so that through knowing us, others feel seen. We have to be able to identify the power of our own narratives and name ourselves first. We also need community. People like Ben and Mark, who have forged unprecedented pathways. People who bring to the table more of our voices. Ones that should have been there all along. And we need our ancestors. Essex Hemphill, Joseph Beam, Reginald Shepard, Marlon Riggs, along with other Black men whose words reach out to us, reminding us of the struggle and the power improving one's life.
When writing No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America, I literally would imagine in my mind that I was standing in the back of a theater, and in the theater was one person sitting in the middle um, of the theater, and I imagined it to be a young Black boy. I could only see the back of his head. Um, He had nappy, beautiful hair. Um, I could see, like, the sides of his face, so I could tell that he had glasses on, he had beautiful dark skin. And as I would write words, I would literally imagine myself writing the words to him. And that boy in that theater was a younger version of myself. Um, So I I chose to write the story because I needed to put words into the world that a young Black queer or trans or gender non-conforming or awkward young person maybe growing up in the city of Camden or Baltimore or Gary, Indiana, um, in some urban space within the U.S. I wrote words to that to that young person. Scene is produced by Harley and Company and Darnell Moore and created in partnership with Vive Healthcare. Theme music is provided by Moses Sumney.